What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest John Wood from U.S. Wellness Meats. How are you, John? Great, Robert. Appreciate the uh, time uh, time and your interest in what we're doing in the uh, grass-fed, grass-fed world today. Absolutely. I think the grass-fed world as a whole is very... Um, a big part of the ketogenic community as a whole. So there's a lot of interest around where our food comes from. Just kind of give me and the audience some some background on how U.S. Wellness Meat started. I'm curious to know the, the beginning story. U.S. Wellness started this journey back in about 1993. Um, and that was really a couple of years before the internet ever got off the ground. And I read a, I read a book called Holistic Resource Management by Alan Savory. Alan Savory's still alive and well today. Uh, he's probably one of the most eminent geniuses on the planet as far as land management and how grasslands and ruminant animals combine to make the planet a healthier planet, uh, helping the planet to store carbon, helping the planet to bring additional rainwater into the soil profile, improving soil biology below the surface, which is absolutely mission critical. And I read that with interest in 1993, and I met the author in 1994, and um, he gave a speech in St. Joseph, Missouri, and one of the more impressive people I've ever met. So long story short, one of the things I'll never forget, he, um, he had about 100 people in a meeting room, and at the end of his hour and a half lecture, he said, I want you to clear half of the room. He'd already done the math, and that was 100,000 pounds of stock density, and then I want you to clear three-quarters of the room, and then we were up to, I don't know, 150 to 200,000 pounds of, of animal density on that floor space. And that was kind of the driving point, is that we need to manage animals on the landscape, and if you could picture the floor space under your feet as, a, as your front yard, and you've got a room, of just say it's 40 by 40, and you're going to portion that off, you know, in 30 equal parts. In the simplest terms, you're going to let these animals have one thirtieth of your, of your, you know, of your growing grass space a day for 30 days. Well, after 30 days, the original space is going to grow back and going to be, you know, tall and luxurious. And that's kind of the concept of what Mother Nature did for eons with the grazing animals in the African continent and the bison in the North American continent. And and we're trying to bring that back to life by improving the health of the soil, improving the health of the animal with really high-quality groceries on a daily basis. You improve the health of the community, the land, the water, the air systems, and and you improve the health of the planet. So it's been a long journey, but we actually had um, we had a broad. He only had two educators working in the United States in the early 1990s, and we brought in one of his educators from Arkansas who spent. Uh, we had five different sets of classes with him over the span of two years, and we were talking about how we do a better job of managing land and how we try to generate more income off an acre of land and and the process of healing the land and. And after several of those sessions, it occurred to us, and about the time this was all going on, the Internet became a, a real live entity in 1995. And that's kind of prompted the thinking that if we could sell a higher quality product direct to the consumer uh, via you know, FedEx, UPS, the overnight services, we might have an interesting model. And, and we took off. Uh, on this journey, we uh, we're from the Show Me State of Missouri, so we didn't really believe things till we do them ourselves. And 1997, we harvested the first animal. 
took it to a local country locker, and I called the butcher, and I said, I don't think this is going to be fit for uh, steaks, uh, but cut a few steaks, and we'll see what it tastes like. And keep in mind, I'd spent the previous 25 years as a, you know, as a cattle feeder of, of grain. I mean, I was a conventional cattle producer doing the same thing everybody else was in 19, uh, 1990 to 1995. So I'd been taught that you had to feed animals grain to make them taste good and be tender, and this was contrary to everything I'd been taught. So, as you can imagine my surprise, the butcher called me up later that day, and he said, well, that animal a grade low choice. I says, well, it can't. You're not the right animal. I said, well, come look at it yourself. So I drove over there. And this animal did have the marbling in the ribeye, and it was noticeably much less back fat on the back of the animal than the other animals hanging up in the cooler. And I said, no, that's sure not the right animal. And so we cut some steaks, and we sat around a, a barbecue grill, and three of us that actually later founded the company, and we I think we drank one beer. We weren't jaded by alcohol, and we all three agreed that the grass-fed was better tasting than a piece of prime, uh, prime grain-fed beef, and it was really fat and really prime. And we just all said the flavor was different uh, and better, and we said the mouthfeel was different and better, cleaner fat, and uh, we cut it with a plastic knife and a fork. We just didn't really believe it. We thought it was just a fluke. You know, one animal out of a thousand might do that. So we did it again in 1998 and again in 1999. By 1999, we did about six animals. We had several families interested in this thing. And then we actually took the, some meat samples off to Iowa State University and the University of Illinois. University of Missouri at that time couldn't even do the CLA testing. So uh, Don Bites, who's professor emeritus at Iowa State and still on campus since 1969, great guy, great biochemist, and he did it free of charge. And, and the results came back were quite surprising. We had a, you know, we had a ratio of almost better than 2 to 1, omega-6 to omega-3, and the commodity beef is going to be 18 to 20 to 1. So we had a dramatic difference in the, in the omega-6-3 ratio. And then we had this nice uh, nice little harvest of CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, the magical stuff that fights cancer, fights diabetes, and puts on lean muscle, takes off fat, and actually, you know, polyunsaturated, good for your circulatory system. So with that knowledge in hand, I made the, I guess, leap of faith that, you know, this thing was worth pursuing. And so um, I stepped aside from the family business I'd been involved in for 25 years. And I guess that would have been uh, in the end of February 2000 and, and, and engaged myself into this wild new world of trying to direct market beef. And I had no idea what we were going to do. I had no idea how we were going to market this stuff. And what we failed to realize, there were six of us that founded the company based off of these original meetings we'd had back in the mid-90s. And, and we we just were so far ahead of the curve. I mean, this was a product that we that was sold everywhere in the United States up until the late 1950s, early 1960s. And grass-fed was a predominant thing we ate here until after World War II, and we had a surplus of ammonia nitrite for making, uh, making bombs, and they converted that into fertilizer and applied it to farm fields in the Midwest. And by the 1950 rolled around, we had a surplus of corn in the United States, and corn prices crashed. And so... The ag department went, you know, decided that, gee, we could feed it to cattle. They'll eat 20 pounds of corn a day, and that's when the cattle feeding industry really got started. It was after World War II, and by 1970, there was a paradigm had shifted, and we were all doing it. And nobody really paid much attention to the biochemistry of what was going on there. But when you take a grazing animal, it's got a pH of 7, 
and then you turn it into a grain-fed animal, you drop the pH down to pH 4.5 or 5, very acidic, and that changes the entire flora of the, of the bacteria that do fermentation. All the ones that specialize in pH 7, they all die off, and then you have an, a very acidic family takes over. And that's why the fatty acid chemistry in the beef is dramatically different. When that 15-ounce grain-fed ribeye is medium-rare, the 15-ounce grass-fed ribeye is going to be well done. And... Uh, and that's why you have, you know, the athletes that see a difference. And we've got numerous of examples now in the last 18, 19 years. Some of the first examples were strongmen we met at the Ironman Expo in Pasadena, John Bielik's event, uh, Ironman Magazine, back in 2003. And I met a couple of these guys, John Anderson and Jesse Morunde and, and Ode Hagen. And they, you know, they were huge, strong athletes. And after three days of the show, they came by and they asked about grass-fed beef, and they knew what it was. I was surprised. And they said, we're, <clears throat> we're buying a commodity product right now to the tune of about trying to eat three to four pounds a day, and it just won't go through us. We, two pounds a day is about the limit of our GI tract. And, and so we kind of made a deal with them, kind of a special deal for to kind of be guinea pigs. And right off the bat, they're going through three and four pounds of ground beef a day, just going through them just like salmon. And the fascinating story was after about um, uh, six weeks, it wasn't how much stronger they were. Their knees are better. Their elbows are better. You know, they're doing, and John Anderson can do 900-pound squats, for God's sake. He was just a, just a beast. But mm-hmm. he was sore. And uh, and uh, then after about a year, you know, they had a significant increase in lean muscle mass. And then the figure fitness models um, we go to these. We went to several of these competitions for these strongmen were competing, and the figure fitness models were over there doing one-arm push-ups and gymnastics, getting paid twenty-five thousand. And the poor strong guys are over there just beating themselves to death. Maybe going to get twenty-five hundred dollars. I soon figured out that sex sells, but uh, but these yeah. figure but these figure fitness models, you know, they were pretty. You know, they really got shrewd too. We had several of those gals who were buying the seventy-five percent lean ground beef, eating that for breakfast, and then he would go to flank steaks later in the day. Now this wasn't the typical fare, you know, that you'd get a, uh, you know, a figure fitness person to kind of go into. But then we've gotten, you know, the last 10 years, we've been feeding the training table, the New York Jets, and Sal Alosi was a good friend and a good trainer of the Jets when we first started that out in Journey. And uh, they had figured out that this, uh, this omega-3-6 ratio is pretty critical to athletes. And, and they were, you know, they'd taken a lot of, you know, t- took a lot of data and basically there were fewer injuries and quicker re- recoveries. And they're still still eating that same training table today. And we've been doing some work with UCLA in the last year and, and we'll do more this coming year. And, you know, these athletes are, uh, you know, really highly tuned athletes are interesting people because just a change in the diet makes a difference and we just started feeding one of the major league baseball teams uh in april this year and complete you know meal for the entire team home and away and and they're quite excited by it from the standpoint that you have much better selection and and you know we we can offer things like these keto burgers that are you know 55 percent lean and we've actually added a model now with, with with the addition of some beef heart you know to get some uh, to get some additional benefits of the organ meats so we've had lots of fun yeah i mean it, it goes so far beyond just the the fatty acid profile, I mean, and getting rid of the inflammatory omega-6 is huge, but I mean, like you said, with the pH being better and even like a hormonal standpoint, I mean, there's not going to be near the phytoestrogens in this grass-fed beef as there is in the grain counterparts. That is correct. And it's, um, you know, the farther we go into this process, you know, you're, we're dealing with people with auto um, 
the autoimmune diseases, and we've got we get really good feedback from those folks. We've got you know we've got families with autistic children that strictly buy you know direct from us, just from the you know for the trying to clean up the diet for the autism spectrum and. And we've got um, you know, we've got senior citizens that are you know that are consuming this product to increase longevity and increase her, increase her vitality. And I'm you know I'm kind of a senior citizen. I guess I'm over the 65 here uh, border, but I still work you know 110 hours a week is a normal week for me, and I don't take any pharmaceutical drugs. And uh, you know I eat pemmican bars every day, a couple of pemmican bars a day, and uh, which is another novel product we created about 10 or 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 45 percent you know straight tallow and 55% jerky and uh, they're kind of an art to make the things but for athletes um, and anyone trying to looking for energy dense foods that's a great way to start today. Have you seen any kind of increase in interest towards these fattier cuts and fattier products now that fat isn't quite as demonized as it was 10 years ago? I'll tell you a true story. I guess it was um, Ben Greenfield's a good friend and supporter, and he kind of hinted that we should make a really high-fat ground beef. And so we made, uh, we, uh, legally we have to call it you know, beef common ground, you know, 55% lean, 45% fat. That's the legal way you've got to do it with, uh, with USDA and FSIS. And so I told my meat manager we were going to make some of these things. He just laughed at me. He said, who's going to buy those? I said, well, I think our keto friends are kind of going nuts over them. And we introduced those things in April of last year, April of 18 or March. And by the end of August, it was like the number 15 bestseller in the entire company. People just went nuts over those things. And, of course, we offered them in patties and we offered them. And then we had the, uh, we had the one variety with the, with the addition of beef heart in there, which really, I think, improves the flavor and makes the color a little bit more acceptable. But, uh, but the fat, um, you know, people understanding now that they've been lied to for the last 40 years. And uh, in my own family, my my mother believed that argument, you know, in 1970 or 71, and she she really quit eating as many fats. And my father still ate a stick of butter about every two days, and and you know, and ate and ate just as much fat as ever. And he. He finally gave up the, the race here at age 95 last year, but his brain was just sharp as a tack. And my mother developed dementia, and, I, and I'm just convinced if she'd have kept eating good fats, she, she would have minimized those chances. But, uh, but it's just, and if you look at the 1970, you know, dementia and, and Alzheimer's just gone straight up on, on the pie chart, and, and the fat consumption went straight down, and that tells me quite a bit. That's all I need to know right there. We took fat out of the American diet, and we just handed a lot of money over to the uh, to the medical community. Yeah, it's pretty alarming when you look at the numbers. When you first started doing the grass-fed uh, protocol in 95, I believe is what you said, was there all your competitors looking at you like you were crazy? Well, you know, I was viewed as crazy for the first four or five years. You know, I mean, I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I guess 1997 was when we actually started to raise the first animals on grass, and I just didn't say much, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But once we kind of opened the business up and went, you know, put the website up in the air, and I gave up my, uh, I gave up my conventional farming habits, everyone thought I was crazy. You know, it, I turned the farm, planted the farm to grass, and. Uh, but I've kind of told my kids, you know, if people are laughing at you, it's usually a sign you're on the right path. You know, it takes some courage to jump out of airplanes and with a not sure the parachute's going to open before you hit the ground. It's kind of basically what we did. And uh, we dangled pretty close to the ground. After the first three years, we lost two members of the team. 
my favorite story. One was the CPA. You know, they always look backwards. They just—he was always afraid he's going to lose his, you know, original seed money. And we, of course, we gladly paid him. He didn't lose a penny with us. But, uh, but it was a—it was not a not a fun time there for the first two or three years. You know, we pretty much worked for nothing. And uh, I remember going to a, to a, to some sort of a festival. Uh, like an apple festival, and we had a little table set up, and we were cooking London broils and and trying to get people to sample the meat. And a couple of clinical nutritionists came by, and I uh, well, this would be a good conversation. They had no idea what we were talking about. I mean, we were, we brought up the CLA thing, and they looked at me like a deer in the headlights. And they worked at a heart hospital in in uh, Central Illinois, a pretty well known heart you know, specialty hospital. And uh, you know, and I realized then that there are just very few people knew what the science was, and uh, but um, you know, it's 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 come a long ways. And Food Inc. came out in 2006. That was the tipping point. That really kind of got people's awareness up. And and in the last you know last 10 years, there's always you know you know social media was a huge thing for us. Once we kind of got into the social media ways, we were we had a quite a accelerated uh, you know rate of growth. And you know we're still growing the business uh, in spite of all the competition out there. But really that that. Back in 2001 or two, there was so little competition. Uh, we were lucky enough to to uh, find Joe Mercola's uh, business, and we were the original, you know, tenant he had on his website for the first year or so. And you know, he was a real he was an inspiration to us. He encouraged us because he was out on a limb too. He was doing things in holistic medicine that people laughed at. So we were a pretty good team, and. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's been neat, the people we met along the way. I, I should probably write a book someday of the people that we've run, you know, we've, we've run across on our journey. And it happens every time you turn around, you run into people that, uh, you know, that encourage you along the way and similar stories. And, you know, Randy Hartnell, the founder of Vital Choice, we have similar backgrounds. And he, he was in the fishing industry, but he came at this thing kind of on the same mission that we came at it. But uh and we shared a lot of the same pain and the same suffering. And uh, hey, Randy turned out to be a very successful business guy and uh, the best wild seafood on the planet. But so it's been it's been a really fun fun run. And I think the uh, you know the paleo movement came along and that really moved the needle. And then the the ketogenic movement came along and it even moved the needle even farther. And it's it's so fun to talk to people that have gotten onto the you know the ketogenic diet and all of a sudden boom they've lost twenty pounds or they've lost thirty pounds and. We've got an artist in Puerto Rico that's lost over 100 pounds. That was probably six or seven years ago he figured this thing out. And there was a business guy in Sheridan, Wyoming, that lost 100 pounds in the course of a year, just changing, just changing his diet. It's simple things. There's a Navy SEAL we work with, uh, SEAL Team 10. This was about 10 years ago now. And he, the same as the strongman, he got wind of this grass-fed beef thing, and uh, he took a deadlift up 160 pounds in six months, just strictly with changing the beef he was eating. And he turned out to be the strongest Navy SEAL in their annual, biannual competitions. And he's still a good friend today. I, I, I still communicate with him. And, uh, but, um, you know, they're just some fascinating people that have understood the difference. Yeah, it's really cool for me, you know, like being in the keto space to see and, and, and learn about the companies like yourself that have, have started, you know, kind of bootstrapping, like, like you were going against all odds to make what you were creating in the beginning there, but then to see how what you created with the right intentions. I mean, you were not to do it solely to make a dollar. You were doing it because you believed in the product. It was a higher quality product, better flavor, and more, you know, sustainable farming. And 
it's, it's having a positive impact on people in ways you probably never would have imagined back then. No, it's a true story. And, uh, and several things that I bring into that conversation was in the early days in 03, we brought in an outside business consultant who helped us quite a bit for the first four or five years. And he was uh, a very savvy guy, actually a Navy SEAL, 20-year veteran of that organization, you know, PhD in food science and marketing and business degrees, really, really helped us considerably. But one of the first things he did was he did a, you know, he, he tried to profile our business. And of course, in the, back in 03, there was little, little knowledge of anything about the grass-fed meat business. But several things, and, you know, he called 100 of our customers or 50, of, I forget the number, but animal welfare came to be a really key thing that a lot of people really worried about. And, of course, being right in the midst of the agricultural business, you know, I, I treat my animals with respect, and I know the better I treat them, the better they're going to treat me in return. And I just never give it a thought. But I didn't realize how 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 important that was to a lot of consumers and these animals lead a utopia lifestyle in our newsletter we have a picture in there every version that comes out i take those most of them by myself and you know you can tell these animals are in a utopia environment we move them into fresh paddocks of grass every day and and you know they just uh they very very smart they know when that they see the little four-wheeler coming or the atv they know something good's getting ready to happen and so it's um you know what we're doing is really good for the land and the livestock and the rural community and we did a we did a, some filming last week and it's going to be aired i think on rfd tv it's kind of a show called farmhouse life it's a new segment but the videographer was a pretty smart guy and i I took him down to the Mississippi River, which is just a mile or two away from my farm, and we stood up on a levee and a kind of a viewing stand, and the river's going by over our shoulder, and, and I commented about the tons of topsoil that are going down that river every day, and it's just a national, you know, tragedy what takes place there, and, you know, we've done a lot of things in this country to stop soil erosion, but we've got a ways to go, but I said, the problem is we have about 100 years of topsoil left, and this is not my number, this is some pretty good soil scientists have actually espouse that and if you look around and you look at the romans they run their agricultural infrastructure they went to africa to raise wheat they screwed that up and there's a lot of civilizations that didn't take care of the land ended up not taking care of themselves and they perished and so you know we have to you know when you're buying grass-fed meat and buying keto burgers and pemmican bars you're not only helping yourself but you're also helping the planet because i spent quite a bit of time last week you know, with this gentleman who was doing the filming, and I said, you know, you see the soil profile here. We've had record rainfall in the month of May, and my, my lakes and ponds are not overfilled because I'm absorbing almost all the water that falls, and my neighbors are losing, you know, 90% of it right now. So there's a, there's even a deeper message. You know, you're promoting this industry. You're also promoting good good land and, and good soil health, and, and I'm actually building soil on my property. I'm increasing soil carbon, soil humus, and we can, I mean, our plants, our grazing plants, with the ability to give them additional additional growth or additional rest periods, they are able to, uh, they are able to, um, you know, store carbon and, and put humus into the soil and build soil. And that's, to me, is we need to do a lot more of that in this country. And that's what this, you know, the Great Plains, you go back to the 1600s and 1700s, and the buffalo managed that op operation from Canada to, to the Gulf of Mexico. That's what they did. They would only go to an area for a short period of time and leave. And some of the richest soils in the United States are in the Great Plains until we kind of messed it up in the in late 1800s. You know, this this topic of conservation is is near and dear to me. Like, my dad's a biologist. I'm a hunter. I've, I've just been raised to think 
of myself as a steward of the land. And I thought like that's how everybody should think that that seems to be, especially as you know, the next generation comes along. I feel like that is not even in the conversation anymore, hardly, which is sad because I mean, it, it, even if you don't have to deal with the issues you caused throughout your lifetime, I mean, this is something that you have to think of for your, your kids or their kids. So, I mean, I'm assuming you just being raised in, as you have, like in the farming and ranching industry, it is just second nature to you. But there's so many people out there that don't even give this a second thought. No, in our newsletter here in the last year and a half, I've I've been working a little bit on my commentary about the importance of taking care of the land and taking care of not only the livestock, the land, the rural community, but it all it all works together. But uh, and I, and I'm old enough now. I've seen things that have happened in my lifetime with land and, and properties. It's just sad. I mean, it's just. Um, it's it's really sad when I see the topsoil worsen away. But we, and then and you get and you're a good hunter. Your your father's a biologist. But you know this this ecosystem. And one of the things that Alan Savory talked about was holism, H-O-L-I-S-M. And every th- every animal plays a role in this thing. And when you take an animal, when you take uh, uh, when you take a let's say the wild turkey out of the mix, you know, you you affect more than just what you think you do. Um, and so the more animals, the more wildlife you have to, you know, to an extent until you have a surplus of wildlife, and Mother Nature usually sorts that out herself. But uh, then what people don't realize, when you pick up a tablespoon of soil, you've got about a billion microorganisms that are at work in there, the tenniomycetes and the, you know, the there's all sorts of soil critters, too many names to even mention, but like a tenniomycetes, that's what gives the soil its smell. If you go by an Amish farm and he's out there, the team of horses, turning the dirt over you know and you don't smell diesel smoke in the air you're smelling the soil you know soil carbon but um we is uh and i think there's a lot of people today the people that we deal with that are really concerned i call them hardcore foodies and 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 soccer moms that really care about their family i think there's a there's more awareness about this connection with the land and the other organization that i'm involved in is called the grassfedexchange.com and the grassfed exchange has been about eight or eight or nine years in age, and it's put together by like-minded producers like myself and others. And then we we bring in university professors, we bring in industry people, we bring in young farmers and ranchers, and we bring in high school students. and And there's a lot of energy synergy, you know, tied to this whole business of trying to take care of the land first, and the land will take care of you. And I think there's, you know, there's a and you've in the farm press in the last five years, you see a lot more evidence of cover crops and and there's been a lot of stuff written about this. I don't think maybe it's out in the mainstream media. It's not on uh, Fox News or CNN like it ought to be. But I think in rural America, there's a, there's more interest than one thinks. But it just needs to be a lot more of it done. I do think that people are, are definitely becoming more aware of you know their food and, and where their food comes from, the sourcing of it, the quality of it. And that leads back to you know land management and properly having a conservationist approach to you know, being a store of the land. So I think that is probably going to be the workflow of it, but I'm excited to see that gaining more publicity because, I mean, it, it is truly up to us to make a difference because nobody else is going to do it and it has to be done. So anything that we can do to spread that message is key. I sure appreciate what you do with your uh, podcasts and blogs. I mean, it just, uh, you know, every time we talk about this, we touch touch more and more people and it just needs to be on the, it needs to be on the discussion point. And I, I tell people, know your food, know your farmer. You know, it's, uh, you know, you can go to the big box stores and buy, you know, buy a grass-fed steak, but you really know the guy behind that or the, the product behind it. 
if it's coming out of Uruguay or Paraguay, uh, you know, do you really know the story there? So, I, I mean, that's I think people do need to get accept the fact, know your food, know your farmer, and uh, you know, buy from your local farmers markets, and you can buy lots of interesting foods in your own backyard, and search those out, and search out those people that are producing foods, and you'll find some great stories there, and. Uh, yeah, I, I tell people, you know, if you want to shop for some things that we do that are hard to find, that's great. If you want to buy your ground beef and if you buy steaks from a local producer, take care of him, take care of his family. But uh, there's plenty There's plenty to go around. On, on that subject, can you kind of kind of dive into just like the, the life of a cow, for instance, on y'all's ranch? Like what is what does that look like? People that buy y'all's product, what can they expect the, the whole process? Uh, process from start to end look like well you got a you got a baby calf that's conceived and there's going to be you know nine months later you're going to have a calf on the ground if everything goes well and that calf is going to be on mama's milk and grass up till it weighs around 500 pounds five to six hundred pounds is a typical weaning weight and then that uh, that particular calf is going to be gathered up with his friends about the same age and same size and they're going to uh, consume forage um um, you know, and I, we like to have fall calves. They kind of go through the first winter on mama's milk, and uh, and then they'll go through the second winter, uh, uh, you know, at about, you know, 14, 15 months of age. And if we do our job right with the forage management plan, they'll, they'll be, you know, they'll be finished on grass, you know, the following year before the, before the second, uh, before the third winter comes along. So the average lifespan is about 24 months if things go extremely well to 28 months if you have some weather issues. So the typical, you know, feedlot animal is usually, uh, uh, probably a 13 to 15 month lifespan and these animals are it's going to take them an additional additional year to get the job done wow that's i didn't realize it was such a discrepancy in age yeah I mean, the feedlot animal is going to gain you know three three and a half pounds a day when they put the last 400 pounds on and the grazing animal you know you're doing one and a half pounds a day gain you know you just don't you know, the, the feedlot animal is being fed very heavy dense starch diet um, you're just pouring the starch into them to the point they can almost, it's almost ready to kill them if you get a little more, a little more than too much starch. And the grazing animals out here turning forage, you know, into, into protein. And so it takes, takes longer to do it. But, um, and, and I also think with some age like that comes a little better quality meat too. I think you get a little better flavor profile. And if, if I go to a really nice restaurant today and I eat a nice steak, uh, which I don't enjoy eating grain-fed steaks because it don't have the flavor, but I'll tell the, you know, Watcher D, I said, you know, it's a really tender steak, but it doesn't have much flavor. He looked at me kind of funny, and I said, well, I'm used to grass-fed. Grass-fed just got a much sharper, better flavor profile. And that's, I, I mean, and we, we, we found out the very first night we ever cooked this stuff back in 1997. Well, I feel like you you got to be a connoisseur of a good quality steak being who you are, what you do for business. So walk us through like the best, the best way in your opinion to prepare, cook and enjoy a good grass fed steak. Well, one of the, one of the tricks on cooking and, and, and people might laugh a little bit, but we do quite a few trade shows and I've, I bought one of these flavor wave ovens. Uh, in fact, I traded one of those years and years ago. Two of us were given a speech in Colorado one time, and my fellow speaker had a flavor wave oven. He was demonstrating, and I was kind of intrigued with it. It's an infrared oven, infrared light bulb, and a fan. And I'll cook all my steaks from the frozen position. I never thaw them out because I want that frozen moisture in the center of the steak. I want it to be there when I get done cooking. Because if you thaw a steak out, you know, thaw it out in the fridge, you're going to have a certain amount of purge, or the, what I call the freeze-thaw water is going to leave the steak. Well, that's part of your tenderness. So I cook all my steaks from a frozen position. 
And I've actually had a restaurant chef in St. Louis 10 years ago, Chef Rex Hale, outstanding chef, and he bought frozen strips and frozen ribeye, frozen strips and frozen uh, fillets from us, taught his sous chefs, and even a fancy upscale restaurant how to cook those steaks on a grill top, not in the little flavor wave infrared oven, which is pretty easy, but uh, he cooked everything from a frozen position. And um, there's a trick to that, but that's one of the tips on that. And then if you're, but if you're going to thaw a steak out, the other trick that I tell people is if you're going to, grass-fed should be cooked under lower heat. But if you're going to cook one, sear the outside edges quickly. You know, the hot, the hot uh, grill top, and then turn the grill down. You know, to moderate heat levels and let it cook slowly. But you're trying, what you're trying to do is sear the steak on the outer edges, all four edges, as a matter of fact, so you can keep the moisture in the center of the steak. And then once you finish cooking the steak, leave it set and rest for five minutes before you ever put a knife to it. And that'll give the moisture a chance to, to actually, um, you know, it, it'll actually diffuse itself once the heat comes off the off the burner top, and you get a much more uniform piece of meat. But uh, and thin steaks, uh, if you're cooking like a sandwich steak or a sirloin tip steak, or even for that matter, like the little eight ounce ribeyes we sell, a little bit of coconut oil or a little bit of olive oil. Uh, and the skillet will actually also help hold the moisture into place. So there's several little tricks like that you can use, but the whole secret on tenderness is just maintaining moisture in that finished product. And we rarely ever have a complaint about tenderness. We age, we, we like all of our beef steaks are aged, wet aged about 30 to 45 days. That's when they're in a vacuum bag. And I hate to give away all my trade secrets, but I don't mind. But that's what we call wet aging. A lot of meat plants just don't want to take the time to do it. But we've learned that's a really good investment in that product. And so all of our primal steaks are actually wet aged. Anything like an export rib we're going to cut a T-bone out of is going to be aged a little bit less just because there's a bone in there. But our steaks and roast... Um, I just rarely ever have a complaint. Now, lamb and bison are different. They're very lean muscles, and so the lamb is actually, if you have a, if you have a histamine problem, which some consumers do have, I tell them to buy the lamb and buy the bison and the chicken because they don't, those really aren't aged more than a couple of days. I'm intrigued by this flavor wave technique. I've never heard of this. So basically, you're just taking a, the frozen steak. How, how long are you cooking it for? Like, how long does it take to from start to finish? Oh, you can take like a 15-ounce ribeye and about 12 minutes on a side, and it'll be pretty much just about right put a little sea salt on it but um uh but it's a flavor wave oven a turbo oven those are a couple of them and you you can't buy those in big box stores you buy them online and they've gotten pretty inexpensive you can buy one of those things for 70 dollars delivered to your door now i think on uh, just type in flavor wave oven or turbo oven and and you can have one to your house Fairly, fairly, fairly cheaply. But it's a great way to cook. Your, you can tell your, you know, eight-year-old child to go over there and fire up the, fire up the grill and put a steak in and punch the keypad up for eight minutes or ten minutes, depending on the thickness of steak. But uh, and you talk about anything in those things. It's a great vessel for cooking bacon. I just put the bacon on the rack and uh, like beef bacon, you want to cook it until it's more crispy than you do pork bacon. And you know, fifteen minutes in there with beef bacon, just perfect. Speaking of beef bacon, I had not even known that was a thing prior to trying y'all's beef bacon and as soon as i got that i mean it was love of first first taste i, I don't think i can go back to pork bacon now <laughs> they don't have beef bacon you got the benefits of uh you know better cla and you got the cla going there you got the omega-3s going and you know the pork pork bacon has got its flavor advantages but as far as the healthy fats go that's the beauty of beauty of the beef absolutely yeah from a micronutrient standpoint it's hard to be good good quality red meat 
beef and tickler. And I also tell people once a week throw in a throw in a meal of uh, of, of some good sockeye salmon, and you're going to have a huge rush of uh, omega three fats and Fact, Vital Choice, they sell a pouch salmon fully cooked, and I, I don't hardly have time to cook or eat, or eat anymore, but I'll uh, I'll have one of those pouch salmons once a week and take a knife and cut the pouch open, pour it on a paper plate, and you've got a meal. So there's, you know, if you're trying to eat well, there's no reason you can't eat well today. And we we just introduced some meatballs here in the last couple of weeks. They're like 73% lean, 72% lean. They have a, The only seasoning on them is a, a, a adobo seasoning from Primal Palate. And uh, they're just a home run pitch on the first try, and uh, those things are you know fully cooked. You warm them up, and you can have a really nutritious meal in a matter of about five minutes. And you just you, those things are going to be really popular, I think. Yeah, I just started carrying those. Um, well, you've had the the liverwurst sausage for for a while now, but I just saw that you were switching over and doing like the, the liverwurst sausage and like seventeen pound bulk packages, which is a hell of a deal. Well, that was kind of a there was a story behind that when we were we. The, the liverwurst maker for years had would uh, when he would make this stuff and I you know he would he would uh, we'd have these end pieces and sometimes we would put some of the, a bit of those in pet food you know and we got to making so much liverwurst we couldn't we couldn't get rid of it and so and then we we decided uh, I tried to get the guy to actually you know now for the last year or so we get these end pieces which is a one pound package of liverwurst that's discounted you know twenty five percent. But I had some of these 17-pound bags left over, and I couldn't get uh, I couldn't get the, the 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 fabricator to do anything with them. I tried to get him to open them up because you got to recook them. And I said, well, maybe we can sell them. I I never dreamed in my wildest dreams we sold uh, 130 or 40 of those liverwurst packages in about 10 days. I would have never dreamed it. But I guess at five dollars a pound, it was too good to be true, and it was. So I'm not sure when we'll have that fire sale out there again, but. Uh, I was amazed at uh, how the liverwurst junkies came out of the woodwork for that for that operation. Yeah, I saw that, and then I put it on my newsletter. I wanted to, you know, let all my audience know about it because the liverwurst is is pretty dang tasty, and it doesn't taste like a normal organ meat. So if people are not a fan of the flavor of organ meat. I mean, they can put that like scramble it in with your eggs or something. And it's it's really good. No, the liverwurst, believe it or not, is the number four seller in the entire business. I and you know people like yourself and, and Eric Berg and you know, uh, Dr. Mercola has talked about it. And there's a number of well-esteemed trainers and physicians that bring that up. But I had an old country doctor tell me one time in Arkansas, and this was a you know this was a guy I met him in about 2002 or three, and he said, you know, liver and marrow bones are probably two of the healthiest things out of that beef animal, and if you eat bone broth and and eat your liver he said you're going to live a lot longer than your neighbors and he was uh, i think there's 25 essential enzymes in beef liver and beef liver interestingly enough i'm sure it's the same with lamb and bison but you've got like beef has got to be at 28 degrees before it'll freeze and liver has got to be at 26 degrees because beef has its own enzymatic activity it generates a little bit of heat and uh, beef has got to be at minus 10 degrees for all biological activity ceases. But the liver will thaw out as quick as anything. And it just and that's if you talk to the Native Americans. I have a good friend who's a holistic doctor on the East Coast. He's a quarter of Nishawabi Indian, and his first name is Bear. And he's from the medicine clan. But as a child in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, he was a kid growing up. You know, he'd go out with his elders to deer hunt, and they would actually 
as soon as a deer was made dead, they would go after those glands. They would eat the liver, they would eat the pancreas, they would eat the spleen right out of the body cavity. They all knew that was part of the you know, health and wellness right there, and those organ meats fresh. And well, that's, that's that's what they did. They would uh, and they would crack the bones. They would make a make a stock out of the bones. So, but bone marrow is eighty. We've tested bone marrow. Bone marrow is eighty-eight percent pure fat, and. Um, well, Ralabanis is a retired, you know, legendary baseball player, and he was a really smart guy when it came to food. But he was, uh, he loved pemmican bars, and he, he loved those marrow bones. And uh, but some of those athletes would take a pound of marrow bones and, and melt the marrow out before a ball game and put some butter with it, and they would eat that like a soup because they were after energy. And uh, but the bone marrow is, you know, and we're selling these five-pound bags of marrow bones cut like pipe bones, so you can actually. You'll roast those in the oven a bit, and you can actually eat straight bone marrow, and those have been very, very popular. Yeah, they're they're tasty for sure. Quick question on the the liver: what what is the protocol on? You're supposed to let it. You're supposed to freeze it for I think 14 days or something like that before you eat it. Yes, I've heard that, and it's all going to be frozen 14 days. I mean, liver is frozen immediately after uh, after it comes out of the packing plant. Liver's never left. You know, liver is frozen the day that it's harvested, and um, but that's. I think it's more of a pork. I think the pork thing is more that fourteen day thing. I think is more tied to pork products due to something in the pork, and I can't rattle that name off right now. But I've heard the fourteen day rule on liver. But I can assure you that any liver purchased from us is going to have at least fourteen days of cold storage on it. And it's, uh, but it's it's amazing how much liver that we do sell. I'm always amazed at our at our liver liver sales. Yeah, there's a the keto community is doing this. Um liver thing now they call them so they they just get the frozen liver and they cut it up add some salt and and eat it as is they don't even cook it no and there's another recipe out there i knew i know some folks that actually put it into a blender and they'll add lime and and, and liver and uh the, there's some concoction that you can get you know at a food processor that you can uh, drink it raw frozen that way as well so uh, kind of a tasty drink, so to speak. Yeah, liver margarita, it sounds like. Liver margaritas, there we go. <laughs> well, John, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to jump on a podcast. I mean, I really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, I, I get, I buy those 75, 25-pound packages of ground beef in bulk, and I I mean, I have one of those pretty much every day. Like, I, you're keeping me strong and healthy, so I, I appreciate what y'all are doing for sure. Are you up to 900-pound squats yet or not? Not quite 900, but it's just in the, <laughs> in the works. It's, it's coming. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I got the biggest kick out of John Anderson. He would, he could, uh, I never saw anyone squat like he could. He just was a machine at those things, but but he was, uh, he, he just loved that product. He was the guy that couldn't eat two pounds and went to three or four and, and, and still still eats massive quantities of, of, of grass-fed beef. So I appreciate all you do, Robert, and uh, for the industry and the fitness community and for the farmers and ranchers out here trying to produce this stuff properly and uh, and just tell your listeners, keep in mind, you know, you're not only doing good for yourself and uh, we've got animals being raised properly and we're also trying to heal the planet at the same time. So. We're doing things that are good for land and people, community, and, and the human health. Yeah, well, you're definitely in it for the right reasons. There's no doubt about that. And and the website, in case anybody's interested, is uswellnessmeats.com, right? uswellnessmeats.com. And uh, there's a um, there's a code out there for first-time uh, first users to the website, Fresh15, something new we've done. If you hit that website for the first time, you're, it's supposed to pick up the fact you haven't been there before and then give you an opportunity to use a promo code for 15% off. So Fresh15, 
FRESH15, and our toll-free number is 877-383-0051. For those who want to call us, again, 877-383-0051. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'll be cooking me up a steak tonight after this call. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you.